0: Good morning. Uh, Welcome to City Legal. It's fantastic to have you along this morning, whether you're watching from home because you're working from there still like a lot of us, uh, or you've got a little watch party like the watch party down in Canberra at the moment, or you're here in person, a very warm welcome to you. Uh, We've been uh, privileged to be able to stand with you right throughout this very, very long and difficult year, and we've reached the last City Legal for the year. My name's Peter Wrench, and the City Legal community exists to consider bigger questions of life with uh, silks and suits in cities right around Australia uh, and we do that by looking at the Bible together. Now um, uh, the format for those who are new in our midst and uh, a special welcome to you is a short talk followed by a Q&A and you can ask questions at any time by uh, using the chat function on the base of the screen or by texting to the number that you find on the screen or on the pieces of paper in front of you if you're here in person. Uh, now we're privileged to have uh, speaking for us again, uh, Al Stewart, uh, who's finishing his series on the strange sayings of Jesus. And this is probably the most strange or the most strange doing of Jesus. So we're looking forward to hearing him. But he's actually asked that a, a passage from uh, the biography of Jesus written by Mark be read. And um, Eileen's going to do that for us. Eileen, would you like to come up? Have you got your mic? Yeah. Um, now, I, I, Eileen, I believe uh, you were in Canberra last week and you went to a watch party. You want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that's right.
1: So I was in Canberra for a short, or probably by Canberra standards, long holiday for a week. And I usually come to City Legal here in Sydney, and I'd heard of watch parties. So decided to join the one in Canberra. Alex, John, and Tom were kind enough to welcome me into their office to watch our speak together. Um, it was really nice being able okay. to yeah sit with like-minded people. Okay,
0: that's great. Now you're going to read a bit of this passage, is that right? That's right. Thank you so much. Over to you.
1: All right. Mark chapter 11, verse 11 to 21. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. They saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered.
2: Thank you, Eileen. Well, as we're looking at uh, these strange sayings of Jesus, we've got a very unusual one this morning. Uh, I wonder if you uh, saw a news story last year, Dalai Lama apologises for temper outburst with vending machine. It had been a long day. Uh, June 2019, the Dalai Lama surprised onlookers with uncharacteristic behaviour today at the United Nations. After addressing a subcommittee on religious freedom, the Dalai Lama walked into the foyer of the building, walked to a Coke vending machine. After placing coins in the machine, it failed to supply the soda drink, He then, uh, and failed to return the coins, failed to supply the soda drink and failed to return the coins. The Dalai Lama then gave the machine what onlookers called a Kung Fu kick, smashing the front of the machine and then ripped it away from the wall, pushed it over. He was heard to say, that's the last customer you rip off. Now, did anyone see that in the media? I'm glad you, no hands went up because of course it is fake news and... It could never happen, could it? I mean, you can't imagine a world spiritual leader losing his temper and destroying something like that. And yet it appears that Jesus, you'd have, regardless of what you think would have to be a world spiritual leader, does something similar, not with a Coke vending machine, but with a fig tree. Eileen just read to us from Mark chapter 11, and you'll have it in your hand or it's here on the screen, uh, from verse 12. the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Verse 14. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. You skip down to verse 20 in the morning. So one day later, uh, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots now, you may you may think, well, so what? It's interesting that Bertrand Russell, the 20th century philosopher and uh, outspoken critic of Christianity, in his essay, 1927, Why I Am Not a Christian, uses this incident to be personally critical of Jesus. Very unusual to find someone who will be personally critical of him, but Bertrand Russell, let me read this to you. He says... Then there is the curious story of the fig tree, which always rather puzzled me. You remember what happened about the fig tree, and then he quotes the verses from Mark chapter 11. Bertrand Russell says, this is a very curious story because it was not the right time of year for figs, and you really could not blame the tree. I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people know to history. I think I should put Buddha... And Socrates above him in these respects. By the way, I'd encourage you, whether you are a Christian person or not, you ought to read Bertrand Russell's essay, Why I'm Not a Christian. For a great philosopher, as far as I can see, every argument is simply, I don't like it. And I suggest, I don't like it isn't really an argument. But anyway, that's just me. Uh, So, does Jesus lose his temper? Uh, Did he get angry? Well, you read this story, he certainly gets angry, but let's see, it's not with a fig tree, it's with something else. Does Jesus lose control? No. In fact, Jesus is never more in control. And as if you read the context of Mark chapter 11 in Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus is actually working on a series of events that have been predicted or outlined centuries in advance. So what I'd like to do with you this morning, I'm, I'm afraid it's a little bit complicated, but let me show you what's going on. It means three quotes from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament part of the Bible, three quotes from the prophets of Israel. I'll show you those, and I, I think we'll see what's really going on. The context uh, you have in front of you, uh, if you have the outline, Mark 11, Jesus has, uh, well, for the last weeks been walking from the northern part of Israel, a hundred or more kilometers, and he's timed it as he's walked again and again and again. He's timed it to arrive exactly Uh, a week before the Passover. And strangely, he's walked 100 or more kilometres, and then he decides that he will ride on a little donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, the last two or so kilometres into the city, which is a strange thing to do, because if you want to make a uh, high-profile, dramatic entry into a city, to ride on a foal of a donkey is a bit like being in the middle of a presidential um, motorcade, on a Vespa. So why does, he, why does he do that? If you look at, uh, well, let me show you the first Old Testament quote, why is it that he gets the baby donkey to ride? In the prophecy of Zechariah in the Old Testament, there's a promise about God's great king, the Messiah, arriving to his people as a king, but a king of peace, someone who will bring peace. So Zechariah 9.9 9 says... Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And as Jesus deliberately chooses to fulfill that prophecy, if you like, he's arriving as a whole lot of the pilgrims come uh, from Galilee, from the north of the country. Uh, And what do they do? See verse 7. Uh, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, uh, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Hence, Palm Sunday. Okay, so they lay the palms down, and those who went ahead and um, those who followed shouted, "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David!" The spreading the cloaks idea is is a thing you find from the Old Testament when someone was anointed king. They threw their cloaks down uh, in front of him so he could, he could walk on them. Uh, what's going on? Well, this is, this is Jesus finally being ready in, the, in his timetable to make a very clear statement that he is the Messiah, the promised king of the Old Testament. And the crowd from the north can see what he's claiming and the religious leaders of the day can see what he's claiming. And then what does he do? Well, it seems a little bit of an anticlimax. See verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany, about two k's away, with the twelve. So he goes. He looks at what's happening in the temple. Now, the, I think it's hard to, for us to get our head around how huge and significant the temple was. This second temple, built by Herod the Great, it would have started, oh, maybe. Um, 50 BC, something like that. They'd been building it for around 70, 80 years. It was massive. It dominated the city of Jerusalem. The temple, there's an artist's impression. You can see it over there. Um, The temple and a model here, the temple courts were the size of six or seven or eight football fields, huge. And every year, thousands of pilgrims from around the known world, the whole of the Roman empire would flock to Jerusalem, particularly at Passover time. And so each of those pilgrims who would turn up had to pay a temple tax. And here's something I just found out this week. They could only pay it in Tyrian shekels, which had originally been minted in the city of Tyre. And it's a long story, but the temple authorities were happy uh, to leave, Even though it had images on it, they left it. That you could only pay your temple tax, which was compulsory, in Tyrian shekels, which meant there was a thriving business in exchanging money. You had six or seven football fields, coins of money, exchanges, etc. The other way that uh, the cash register turned over was that pilgrims had to offer a sacrifice. And you couldn't travel across the known world on ships, etc., and carry a lamb or a cow or whatever. And so they had to buy animals as well. So exchange rates, inflated prices on animals and a captive market, there was money to be made. And the control of that was worth a fortune. History tells us that the, the uh, aristocratic family of Caiaphas uh, and his sons and sons-in-law controlled that big business for ooh, 30, 40 years at the beginning uh, of the first century. And they were in control this day. So Jesus looks at the temple. He sees what's happening with the money changes and the selling of animals, etc. He sees, if you like, the very heart of the spiritual life of the nation. And then he goes home or he goes back out to Bethany. Now, what are we told? After he's looked at the spiritual life of the nation in the temple, then we're told the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He sees the fig tree. There's no fruit on it, verse 14. Then he said to the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Then he goes to the temple again. Now, that may seem a strange thing to do, unless you've been reading your Old Testament. And in the last two pages of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, about 450 BC, God speaks through the prophet and predicts something that will happen. He says this, Malachi 3, verse 1. So this is our second Old Testament quote. Hey again, you going? Still with me? Yeah. Okay, good. All right. Here it is. God says this in Malachi. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, and then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Okay? So God himself will, or the Lord they're seeking, the great king will, will turn up and where will he go? He'll go to the temple. And what will he do? Uh, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll come and judge what's happening. He'll, if you like, he'll put the launderers' soap. He'll put the cleaners through things. And so, when Jesus comes to the temple, what does he see? Well, the very place where people should have met with God, where they should have been able to offer sacrifices, etc. He sees corruption. And what does he do? He is truly angry. See verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Thousands and thousands of people, a fortune in money everywhere. Imagine you've got tables of money changes and coins and he flips them over i was looking for a video clip or or a reenactment of this but no one's got the budget to do it Uh, it's all just just little groups of there's thousands of people involved and he empties the place why well he's furious and was it that the the heart of the religious life of the nation has been corrupted And what is it that corrupts institutions, organisations, money and power? And they were both here. And I've got to say, sadly, in the last 2,000 years, Christian institutions, organisations, churches have not been immune from being corrupted by money and power. And so their Lord comes to look for fruit. Um, What does he mean by fruit? He means a character that serves God truly and so treats other people the right way and there's nothing now what's the story about the fig tree the fig tree is an enacted parable the fig tree is him showing with a I I believe the word is emblematic it's him showing with an emblem what is about to happen or what is going on I'll give you an example of how that that can work you get a group of people together um uh, in a little circle and they set fire to a piece of cloth big deal except if they're burning the flag of their own country in a protest all of a sudden it becomes a whole different thing all right. or a public figure an athlete refuses to sing a song big deal if it's the national anthem at a major sporting event it it says something very different in the old testament the fig tree is a picture of Israel. Israel is the, the, if you like, God's fig tree that he's planted in the promised land. And in a number of the different prophets, God comes looking for fruit, for a right way that they serve and worship him and so how they treat one another. Third Old Testament example, here we go, from the prophet Micah. What misery is mine, I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the Early figs that I crave. The faithful have been, now what does he mean? Well, he explains. The faithful have been swept away from the land. No one upright, sorry, no one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. And, and God comes looking for fruit in his nation in the, the fig tree that he's planted and there is none. And so the Lord comes to his temple and finds no fruit. And if you like, it's acted out. Now, there's a, there's a number of times when the, you get an, an acted out parable. They're um, more common in John's gospel. You'll get it. Okay. Jesus feeds a crowd of 5,000 people with a cut lunch. And then he says, I am the bread of life. Okay. Jesus opens the eyes of a blind man. And then he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and then Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. It, it says he does something, he points to, to a bigger picture. Or in Mark chapter 8, there's a, there's a two stage healing of a man. So Jesus heals him and he can kind of see, and then Jesus touches him again and he can see clearly. At the same time, Peter says to Jesus, You're the Messiah, but he doesn't quite get it. And then later on, Peter really understands. So those things are there. Bertrand Russell uh, is wrong in saying that Jesus is angry with the fig tree. But is Jesus angry? Oh, yes. Uh, He's angry about the way that God is being treated in the temple and angry about the way that other people are being treated. Because they go together. What you think about God will influence and control how you treat others. Why is he so angry? Well, have a look at verse 17. He says, after he's kind of emptied the place, he says, and as he taught them, he said, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Um, that's, That's pulling together two other parts of the Old Testament, one from the prophet of Isaiah, where God says his house is to be a house of prayer, obviously, and another one from the prophecy of Jeremiah, where God said they turned it into a den of robbers. It's actually about the first temple that Solomon built and God had that one taken away as well. And so what should have been the glory of God shown and where people could come and ask for forgiveness and be treated properly, they actually been corrupted by greed and selfishness. And God was being dishonoured and people exploited. Why should God be honoured? Oh, simply, I think, because it is the right thing. We are his creatures. He is the one who gives us life. He should be honoured. God deserves that. And also, it's the best thing for us. Whatever other thing that we might put at the centre of our lives will not, will not hold the weight that we put on it. Uh, to do that with anything else is a dishonour God. And you notice the end of the story, kind of the the tragic end of that event, is the reaction of the religious leaders. Verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the law being the Old Testament, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him. But they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. They look to kill Jesus to protect their vested interests, which are centered in the temple. And it will take them just a week to organize the judicial murder of this man. But here's the great irony. And uh, I don't know if you picked it up. It's as they arrange to murder Jesus in order to protect their vested interests in the temple and the money and the power It's as they kill Jesus that the need for the temple disappears because Jesus will die as the one ultimate sacrifice to pay the price of forgiveness. And so once that price is paid in one great sacrifice, the temple is no longer necessary. It will be taken away as corrupt. In fact, if you read on in Mark's gospel, Jesus speaks of it in Mark chapter 13. Uh, Verse one, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And it truly was a magnificent building. Do you see all these buildings? Jesus replied. i sorry. Do you see all these buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And of course, that happened a generation later when the Romans came in the year 70 and destroyed the temple. Now, there may be questions in a moment. Let me just pull a couple of threads together. At one level, and I guess a superficial level, any of us involved in a, quote, religious organisation, church, etc., need to do an audit regularly to be sure that what is driving that organisation, that group, etc., is concerned for the glory of God and caring for others rather than selfishness and power that we just need to continually look for that. What's Mark showing us here? That the Lord, the promised Messiah, arrived. He came to his temple. He saw corruption. He he acts out a parable of the fig tree without fruit. And then ultimately, his death means that the temple is taken away. One last point. I've been thinking about this. I don't know how to package it up, but you may want to think about it. Jesus walked through a world so full of wrongs, injustice, pain, uh, uh, military occupation, all sorts of things, and he's deeply compassionate. But the thing that he gets most fired up about, that he most viscerally reacts to, is about the glory of God. Isn't that interesting? It's about the glory of God is his chief concern. Pete, I'm done.
0: Well, thanks very much. I will just give you a a 15-second breather. Uh, There's been some fantastic questions that have come through already. Uh, There's still an opportunity, so you can use the chat at the base of the screen or text them to the number that you can see there uh, on your outlines or on the screen. Uh, and we'll get going in about five seconds. Is that all right, Al? You've had a drink? Sure. <laughs> I'm ready. You've
2: got some good questions. As long as I can say I don't know, I'm ready to go. Uh,
0: okay, we're going to start with uh, two from Melbourne. Um, if Jesus was so humble, why are churches so big and elaborate?
2: Uh, it depends what you mean by churches. Um if you mean the massive cathedrals that are built, I think they're monuments to a misunderstanding of church. Uh, in the New Testament the word church is a cle- ecclesia, which just means the gathering and means essentially I think a community of people who meet to listen to Jesus, to follow him and to care for one another. Now the the size of a church then, the size of a gathering like that, it depends. I've known very big churches that care for and love one another, and very small gatherings that can be cold and uh, uninviting at all. So, but um,
0: so, so you. I'm not a
2: great fan of cathedrals.
0: So, but you're saying that basically it's a rain shelter.
2: Uh yeah, that's a good way to put it. A, a, a church building to just keep the rain off and try and keep you warm in winter and cool in summer. Yep.
0: Uh, okay, what a, uh, a direct question here. What about uh, it not being the season for figs? Can you just expand upon that a bit?
2: I, I, well, yeah, it's a little bit tricky, isn't it? Um, uh, I think he's saying really Jesus wouldn't have expected there to be figs on there. He's hungry, he walks over, but it's like it's not a surprise that there's no figs on it, I think. So it's, it, it's an acted out parable. I suspect yeah, he's hungry, but he, he knew there weren't gonna be figs anyway. I think that's right.
0: Okay. Uh well there's a kind of follow-up question here. Yep. Elsewhere, I think elsewhere in the Bible, the mm-hmm. fig tree is given a second chance. Why not now?
2: Uh, yeah, it's in um Luke chapter thirteen. Yeah, Luke chapter thirteen where um the um uh the owner of the fig tree comes to the, the tree and there's no fruit. And uh, he says, for three years now, I've been coming and looking for no fruit. And the, the gardener says, give it one more chance. Now, it's interesting whether or not you can read that kind of in the, the bigger context of God gives people one more chance. But also the point being, there comes a time when God's patience runs out.
0: So, so uh, when is that time going to be?
2: Well, wait a minute. And then, but it could be that Jesus is saying, in the context of those who are listening, yeah, there is one more year, but that year's run out, okay? So there comes a time when even God's patience runs out. I think that's what that parable is saying. Now, when will that be? Well, Jesus says he'll, um, he's coming back sometime. Uh, by the way, as soon as anyone tells you they know when that is, they're telling you porkies. So I don't know when that is, but um, repent now and avoid the rush.
0: All right. Okay, well, this it's still on the fig tree. Um, is acting out this parable on the fig tree a little tough on the fig tree?
2: Uh, yes, okay, I guess. So the, the fig tree took one for the team to make the point, I guess, is what I would say. Okay. Um, uh, it, probably didn't, it probably didn't feel a lot of pain. I'm sure it was done painlessly. But interesting, it's withered from the roots, and that, that being, that's it. It's yeah. over. Okay. Right? It, 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 no one will eat from this thing again because it's withered from the roots. And so the judgment on the temple that's coming, it, it is permanent. And it's interesting, isn't it, that it, it, the foundations are still there. I've seen the wailing wall stood there. right? But it's not been rebuilt and it, it's gone.
0: Uh, is there sort of a link with the, the, the curtain in the temple being torn from top to bottom? So it's of God that this has happened.
2: Uh, yes, the the temple that se- sorry the curtain that separated the holy of holies, the idea of the very presence of God from the worshippers. That that curtain is torn. Yes, and as you say, from top to bottom, the idea of God doing that. And once that happens, once Jesus' sacrifice has been offered, there's no more no more need for the temple. In fact, the temple would become a massive distraction. The temple was only ever a if you like a visual aid to point to the fact that that sacrifice was necessary to pay for guilt but all of those sacrifices actually pointed to jesus one sacrifice
0: and if uh, if peter and the disciples understood the emblematic nature of this parable right how did that help them before or after the resurrection
2: i i suspect that they knew their old testament better than me and in hindsight as they looked back they saw what is happening. You know, the Lord had come to His temple. He'd said, He's judged it. The fig tree had no fruit, etc. I'm not sure that they necessarily know what's going on at the time, because they say, "Oh, Jesus, look! You know, it's withered." That that's a surprise to them. Uh, yeah.
0: And um, the question about the temple: the temple courts were expansive. Uh, how come nobody intervened to stop Jesus from the devastating chaos?
2: It's interesting that he had, so I think he had some kind of authority about, about him and maybe some guilty consciences as well, kind of slow people down. It, John's gospel, uh, it appears Jesus has done this twice. It's mentioned at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry in John chapter 2, where, where I'll give you another, Jesus actually makes a whip, sits down, plats a whole lot of cords together and makes a whip and uses that to clear the temple. Now, whether or not he does that in Mark chapter 11, we're, we're not told. Now, I think, too, Jesus probably cleared the temple and everyone's a bit freaked out and, and sorry, cleared the temple courts. But the next day, it would have been business as usual. He doesn't stop it. Uh, he, he Once again, it's kind of a symbolic thing. The great irony is what stops it is the fact that they kill him. I, I think you're meant to see that there's a... It's a real irony. We will protect our vested interests by killing you, and it's as they do that, the temple becomes no longer necessary.
0: Uh, there's a reference here to your one of the Old Testament uh, verses you referred to? If God says that not one upright person remains, what hope is there for us?
2: Uh, that's why Jesus died, so we can be forgiven. That—that's the yeah. So I, uh, it, it's, it's poetry saying that, that things have fallen apart in the nation of Israel. I'm not sure that it means that there isn't one, any one Israelite that does the right thing. It, it's, it's poetry saying that everything's corrupt. It's just a total mess is what it's saying. And what hope for us? Well, I, I think that's right. You need, you need actually to come before God and, and to find forgiveness. Uh, we talked about the 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 pharisee and the tax collector uh last week yeah the idea of humility before god and asking for forgiveness i am in the forgiveness business so i want to be forgiven okay
0: yeah all right um you've talked about jesus being angry is it ever right for humans to be angry
2: yes absolutely it just depends what we're angry about and what we do with that but anger is i i think the heart of anger is when expectations aren't met and uh yeah it's right to be angry with injustice or cruelty or uh bullying or etc my problem is i get angry often when i don't get what i want Uh, so i I have to say that because kathy might be watching online
0: all right um uh last question here it's um it's obviously from a lawyer um so how do we reconcile Jesus' curse on the fig tree with Romans 11:24? 24? And um, they've provided the reference yes. for your help. That is, um, after all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Mm. So how do we reconcile that with Jesus' curse on the fig tree?
2: Can you read just the last sentence again? how do we yeah. reconcile that with uh, jesus' curse
0: on the fig tree with romans eleven twenty four which talks about being grafted into the uh, uh, unnatural branches being grafted into the uh, good stock
2: I wonder who wrote that that's a that 's a cracker um, Romans eleven is one of the I think the most difficult parts of the new Testament to understand it's talking about the relationship between uh, uh, Jewish people and Gentile people. And the idea is that those who are Jewish people who believe in the Jewish Messiah are like the natural branches of a tree that, that grow up and then Gentiles like, like me, when we believe in the Jewish Messiah, uh, who is really the world's Messiah, but when we believe in the Jewish Messiah, it's like a wild olive tree being grafted in to the tree. Okay. Um, Romans 11 also talks about or hints about the idea that um, God, is not, God is not finished with the Jewish people in terms of bringing them to know their Messiah. Okay, um, I hadn't thought so much about connecting those two images i i would take it that mark 11 is situation specific about the temple and and what what jesus sees and the action uh there and then his warning in chapter 13 about the destruction of the temple i i don't think the fig tree means that the whole of the nation every jewish or israelite person is finished i think it's about the malachi three um, Old Testament passages about the Lord coming to his temple and putting the cleaners through it. I think that's the context, but well, that's a cracker of a question. I'm going to think about that.
0: Yeah. All right, so we, got, we have got one last one. Sorry. Ah, okay. um, another loyally question. Uh, do, you, uh, do you wish to expand upon the judicial killing of Christ? You know, for example, trial at night, the Jewish authorities not having power over capital offenses and so on.
2: Uh, well, when I said the judicial murder of Jesus, um, the Romans had been occupying uh, Judea since um, 63 BC and uh, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin operated day to day in terms of running the show, but it operated under the authority of the Romans and the Romans had put in an administrator. um, You want a short answer, don't you? The Romans had put in an administrator in about six AD by then, by the time of Jesus was Pontius Pilate. And so the, The Jewish authorities wanted Jesus killed. They had to frame his death as um, sedition or rebellion against Rome so that uh, it was only the Roman administrator who could administer the death penalty. That's what I mean. They had to frame it in a judicial way and put it to Pilate politically and put political pressure on him so that he would allow them to have or the Romans would kill Jesus.
0: All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Would you please join me in thanking Al for his uh, great efforts? Uh, Well, as I said, this is the last uh, City Legal for 2020, so thank you so much for being with us all the way through. Uh, You can see on the back of your forms and hopefully on the chat that we're going to resume on Thursday, the 4th of February 2021. So look forward to seeing you then. Bye-bye.